The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. You will often find David Brown studying plants in the gardens at Hilton Dales Estate. He seeks to acquire the perfect cutting for his amazing indoor arrangements. In our conversation, he tells us how you may accomplish the same with your garden plants. Before coming to Hills and Dales Estate, David taught high school horticulture for 30 years and then was an adjunct instructor at Southern Crescent Technical College for eight years. On top of all that, he and his wife also owned and operated their own floral shop. David has a BS degree in horticulture and agriculture education from Purdue University. Now he is the greenhouse manager and floral designer for Hills and Dales Estate, where he is always applying his wealth of knowledge and creative expertise. This is episode 82, Decorating from the Garden with David Brown, a remix of episode 30 on the Garden Question Podcast. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. David, when I visited Hills and Dales Estate, I was taken aback by the gorgeous floral arrangements located throughout the house. Tell us how those arrangements come about. What was given to me when I got my job was the chore of designing floral arrangements that would go with the house. I think the one thing that kind of scared me was they said the one requirement is they would like me to use only plant material out of the garden. In other words, don't go to the grocery store, don't go to the wholesale florist, find everything on the property. To a lot of people, that sounds like, well, it's a big garden. There ought to be a lot of things there. In actuality, it's testing everything and trying to figure out whether it will hold up in a floral arrangement or not. That was one of my first big chores, and I'm still working on that, experimenting with different preservatives and also just trying out different flowers from the garden. My uh, second challenge, though, was to put something appropriate in the house, container-wise, and also trying to keep in mind that the foundation and also Mrs. Calloway's grandchildren, who are our trustees, they wanted something in that house that was reminiscent of what Mrs. Calloway would have appreciated. Maybe not necessarily done herself, but that she would have liked it. Luckily, she's in the same generation as my grandmothers were. So I kind of pulled from that. I do look at the rooms. I look at the style of the rooms and then I design something that I feel will go with that room. Keeping in the back of my mind, would Mrs. Callaway like this? So that's always kind of a little bit of a chore there. I, I, maybe I'm asking her for a little bit of guidance as I do my flower arrangements. Of course, the other chore is just keeping them all week long, making sure that they hold up for our guests, which we're accomplishing that pretty well. Are you doing repetition in your designs or is each week a brand new design? I will say that it is somewhat repetitious, not the same flowers, and not always put together in the same way. 
but it is in the same location every week, such as maybe it's on a, a marble top chest. That is where they want the flowers. They don't need them anywhere else in the room. And I use the same container. To a certain extent, they are the same general size, I would say. But I do change the way they look according to what flowers I have to use and what season it is. You're actually taking cuttings to the garden there at the estate to make these arrangements. Yes, whenever possible. Now, every now and then, I might have to rely on something I have to purchase, such as in October, I am using pumpkins. We do not grow pumpkins on the property. In my arrangement in the music room, it is an arrangement that has a very large green squash that looks like a flattened pumpkin. It's setting in the arrangement with grapevines encircling it. Then I am using materials out of the garden, which include Nandina berries, some chrysanthemums, and greenery out of the garden. How many of these arrangements are you doing every week? In the spring, I do approximately nine of various sizes. Some are very large. Some are extremely small that go on like desks or possibly a dressing table. You've told us a little bit about the pumpkins and the grapevines. Walk us through one of your favorite arrangements for this week, what material you use. Okay, well, I'll tell you a fun one. It is in the palm room, and that is the dining room in which the second generation of Callaways used as their main dining room. It's a little less formal, and yet when visitors come in, it's got marble floors and it's got beautiful draperies and everything, but it's reminiscent of a sunroom. On the dining room table, I have placed a large plank of wood that's covered in black fabric, and I have attached a very gnarled piece of wood that is arching over that board in order to look like a dead tree. In that branch, I have some ghosts. Alice Calloway really liked Halloween, so I thought it'd be appropriate to do something with a kind of a Halloween theme for this month. The ghosts are made out of cheesecloth, which has been formed into the ghost shape by spraying it with a starch and then allowing it to dry. So I have those perched in the trees like they're floating. And down below, I have a conglomeration of different sized pumpkins and gourds. Rather than carving a pumpkin, which would end up getting too soft to last the whole month, I drew faces on the pumpkins. Faces of surprise looking up at the ghosts that are flying overhead. It's all in tones of the oranges and greens and browns and that type of thing. I did include some flowers. I have two small arrangements that I kind of tuck into the pumpkins that will give a little bit of purple color and that type of thing. Then I get to pretty much choose the china and crystal and everything that goes on the table. So I've put one that's basically a green pattern. So it goes along with some of the uh, green pumpkins. Not necessarily a flower arrangement per se, but it's more of a little scene that I have created using the pumpkins. What flowers did you use? I used what is called Mexican bush sage, which is a relative of the salvias. It has a quite a long, dark purple spike that is velvety to the touch. It blooms only during September, October, that time. And then I used Ryan's pink chrysanthemum. It's a very plain daisy shaped chrysanthemum and it's in a kind of a, a soft pink color but very much appropriate for fall. Mm-hmm. I use some arborvitae greenery. I use some dried hydrangeas. That's basically what is in there. I may have some Nandina berries in that also. That does sound like a really fun arrangement. Is there a, another one that you would like to talk about? 
I think I'm taking it a little easy this fall due to the fact that it is a little bit harder to get flowers that will make it through the week. So I have been drying hydrangeas all summer long. In the dining room, I like this arrangement, even though I don't find it hard to do, but the dining room arrangement is a huge arrangement of dried hydrangeas in various colors, from green to a cream color to a dusty blue color. Makes quite a large arrangement. This is where I kind of can take a little rest. I don't have to make it every week. It stays there all during the fall. Yeah, good break there. I did make another uh, arrangement that I did like, and again, pretty simple. It's up on the second floor landing for the staircase. Mrs. Callaway had this large iron urn. Stands about, I'm going to say, maybe two feet tall. Mm -hmm. And it has lichens growing on it and everything. So I have that up there, and I did magnolia in it, dried hydrangeas, again, some gnarled branches coming out. No flowers whatsoever, but I have a very large cheesecloth ghost hanging in that <laughs> one. And as you come up the stairs, you look right up at that. Wow. Uh, so it makes kind of a I'm going to say a fun arrangement. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people tend to think these historical homes are maybe somewhat stuffy. Yeah. I think this adds a little bit of lightness to the whole thing and also shows that the Callaways had a sense of humor. They enjoyed different holidays also. You're taking these cuttings from the garden. Do you have a separate cutting garden or are you from the actual garden that people tour through? I do have a cutting garden. In fact, we have two cutting gardens and I grow in that what I can grow, mainly things that we want to keep the deer away from, oriental lilies and that type of thing. I have a few rose bushes in there and peonies. Then they allow me to go through parts of the garden and glean from it what I can, especially in evergreen foliage that type of thing. I also go down to the visitor center. They have a lot of hydrangeas down there and they pretty much allow me to cut anything. As long as it doesn't detract from the beauty of the garden, mm -hmm. they don't really mind. In fact, in September, we had our Lycoris field was blooming. A lot of people call them Lycoris prize lily yeah. and they're a red color. We probably have, at a good estimate, there's a thousand or more of those that come up. Wow. I can pretty much walk through that and cut what I want. Earlier in the fall season, I was using those in my arrangements. Very appropriate color. They're a nice fall red, so it's kind of an orangey red. So yeah, uh, to answer your question, I've got both. I've got the cutting garden and I have the regular garden to get things from. That's great. If somebody wanted to do a cutting garden, how would they pursue that? Main thing is to decide what you're going to grow and what kind of conditions it needs. Most blooming plants are going to need at least six to eight hours worth of sun in order to get a good bloom on the plant. That's one of your first considerations is you've got to find a location that will give you that. The second thing is you got to decide how big you want to have. Some people think, oh, I just don't have enough room for that. But you can actually put a cutting garden along a garage beside your house, maybe a strip of land that's only five feet deep and then as long as you want it or as short as you want it. And then put the things in there that you desire to grow, things that have the colors you want and that type of thing. Not everybody has a huge piece of land that is available for tilling up and putting in this enormous cutting garden. It really goes by your piece of property and what you have. Take, for instance, my house. I have a lot of shade. I can't grow a lot of blooming things. Mm -hmm. So I rely a lot on shrubbery that blooms. And I cut from that, such as camellias and sasanquas, azaleas, that type of thing. My only sunny spot is in my front yard. And I just don't desire to have a cutting garden in my front yard. 
here I am saying you can have a cutting garden and I don't even have one. You're just relying on your own landscape garden there to pull granary from. Yeah, I think a lot of people, they think they have to have this blooming herbaceous plant when there are a lot of shrubs that give you a lot of color and a lot of leaves and things. And you can use those in your arrangements and get a really nice look with those things, especially if you've got like hydrangeas and things like that, that you're using as either foundation plants or some sort of landscaping plant. They're all available to cut. and Most everything will hold up pretty well in a flower arrangement. Are you arranging those in water or are you arranging them in foam or chicken wire or what? I do both. If it is a very small arrangement, I will use a vase with just water. Mm -hmm. When I first started working here, I was using Mrs. Calloway's wire frogs that I would put in the base of the containers that we were using, then arranging flowers in those. It was a nice idea, and I kind of liked doing something that Mrs. Calloway did, but I felt I couldn't get the designs that I wanted with that. I still use them from time to time. Mm -hmm. If you have flowers where their stems are actually submerged in water, they will hold up better than being in foam. You're a little limited on what you can do as far as getting angles and how you actually make that arrangement. My bigger arrangements here at the house, I use floral foam, but I do use containers that are very deep. And when I put that foam in and I do my arrangement, I then fill that container up with water and I make sure every day I go in and I fill it back up to the brim with water. Essentially, the foam is providing a medium that holds the stem in place then I keep the water there so it gives almost the same effect as it being in a vase of water. If you just have whatever the container is, is holding the water and and you don't happen to have foam or chicken wire, instead of just plopping it down into the vase, is there a technique or a trick that you've learned? There's a couple. I picked up a lot of these things from friends as I was growing up. I had some ladies in town that kind of took me under their wing when I was probably a, oh, I'm going to say like 13 years old, somewhere around there. I had always been interested in gardening. So they found a camaraderie with me and I found it with them. And of course, usually they always had something for me to eat. And that kind of interests me a lot too. They showed me a couple tricks. One of them was go out and take stems from either shrubbery or maybe some really long flower stems. Could be like rose stems. Put them in your vase, cut them off level with the lip of the vase. Put enough in there that they still can move around, but there's quite a few in there filling up your void in that vase. Then fill it up with water and start putting your flowers in. Mm. As you stick more and more flower stems in, those rose stems, let's say, or sticks, start getting tighter and tighter and tighter, and they will hold your flowers and keep them from flopping over from one side to the other. That works pretty well. Then another way is if you have, it's called floral adhesive tape. The florist called bulldog tape. I have no idea why they call it that. You can actually make a grid across the opening of your vase. It would look like a lattice work. You have to determine how large a hole to leave in that lattice work. You just make that grid across the top and then you just stick your stems of your flowers through that grid and they'll provide support for your flowers to keep them from moving too much. Third method is, and I use it here with some of my vase arrangements. Living here in Georgia, you've got magnolia. 
I will go out and cut three or four short branches of magnolia and I'll stick that in my vase first. So I've not only got stems, but I have those big glossy leaves that are kind of crammed into this vase. And then I put my flowers in and they provide some support also. With the foam, you just have more options to start building a brighter structure. Yeah. And it's like if you want to angle a flower down, Mm -hmm. you can do it with foam. With those other methods, you really can't do that unless you find a flower that is naturally bent or you put a wire on the flower and then artificially bend it. When you're selecting the flowers or the greenery or your material to go in the vase, when's the best time to harvest that or to collect that? If you have noticed that you are going to need an arrangement, you ought to go out the day before in the morning and harvest all your flowers and your greenery at that time. Flowers have absorbed water over the evening hours and are turgid. When you cut them, it doesn't put as much stress on them. Also, the hot sun has not come out and it's not pulling the water out of the flowers actively. You should also then kind of look at what stage of bloom those flowers are in as you pick them. Full-blown flowers are not going to last very long. If you only need it for one day, well, that's fine. If you need it to last possibly two, three, four days, or maybe if you're lucky, five days, then you need to pick something that is not quite in full bloom, maybe still in somewhat of a bud form or just slightly opening. Once you cut those flowers, don't leave them out without water for a long period of time. You need to get them into some lukewarm water and store them in a dark, cool room. Prefer Preferably, if you have packets of floral preservative, put that in your water also. It just provides some sugars to your flowers so that they will last longer. Do you have a particular preservative that you like to use? I use one made by a company called Crystal, but there is another company named Floral Life. It's really the same thing. And I'm thinking that Crystal, C-H-R-Y-S-A-L. I think that's it. So you wouldn't want to just throw a teaspoon of sugar or an aspirin or anything like that? If you want to make a homemade one, it's better that you just go get a bottle of Sprite. Really? And that will supply a fructose to the flowers that's a little bit better than doing the aspirin or just sugar. A lot of people have had good luck with putting just a drop or two of Clorox in their water, and that kills bacteria. I think you could also use a little bit of citric acid, such as something like lemon juice. Now, that's in addition to the preservative? People have to be careful because with Clorox, you're going to get a Clorox smell. That I don't particularly like. Yeah. I don't use that. Bacteria is the thing that gets in your water and forms on the stems that clog your stems up and then they cannot take up any more water. You used the term turgid. Explain to us what that is. Turgidity in a plant is when the cell is full of water, such as like at its maximum ability to hold water. That is when you see a what you would call a healthy plant that's shiny and it's standing up straight. It is very turgid. And that means every cell in it is full of water. If you lose turgidity, your plant looks wilted. And it's like a balloon. If a balloon's full of air, it's tight. If it loses air, it starts getting soft. And then, of course, if it loses too much air, then it becomes limp. And that's exactly what a plant does, except water instead of air. 
When you're selecting a stem or a piece of greenery, what do you need to think about when you look at that and you're making your choices? First of all, I have in my mind what style of arrangement I'm going to be making, or I should say maybe what shape I'm going to be doing. And that is in reference to, do I need tall, straight stems? Do I need some stems that bend or curve? Once I have that in my head, then as I go out into the garden to pick, I start looking for branches or flowers that will fit into those shapes that I need. That way I don't have to artificially alter them or put them in an unnatural position. It takes some time here at work. They think I'm a little odd. Sometimes I'm standing in front of this tree just looking at it. I'm searching through that tree like a dogwood, looking for the exact branch that I want to use. Then once I see it, cut it and put it in my bucket and take it back and hopefully it will work. So you're wanting to take its natural form and orientation in the garden and use it back into the arrangement that same way then? I would probably say 80% of the time I like to use things in their natural position, but that isn't always possible. Sometimes you have to put something in an unnatural position, such as a gladiolia normally grows vertically. Well, sometimes you're making a long, low arrangement, but you need to use these gladiolias. Okay, well, then you're sticking them in horizontally. That is not their natural position, but it works because of the effect that it gives you. Mm -hmm. That's a hard one to explain to people sometimes. It also has to do with which way the flower faces. Some particular flowers, they face a certain direction. And when you start turning them in odd ways, they look odd. Go back to the gladiolia. The reason it doesn't look odd is that I think it's a very fake looking flower. It's very rigid. They've been pretty much bred for florists to use. You get a display of flowers that really look pretty good no matter which way you put them in your arrangement. If you were buying flowers, local flower shop or or wherever you buy your flowers, are those going to be the same varieties that you find in a garden? No. Number one, the flowers that you buy at, let's say, a grocery store at their floral shop or in a florist, most of those are bred to last a longer time, have a more vibrant color. Sometimes they have more petals. They're all specially bred for florist use. It's to give the florist optimum, just like our fruits and vegetables. All of those things are bred to give us the prettiest apple, the reddest apple and like that. So it'll sell. Also, they like to keep their stems very straight because growing them is easier and packing them. It's easier if the stems are straight. So everything you buy in a florist pretty much has a extremely straight stem. You can't find those things that have the curves in them and that type of thing. I would be amiss to say that I don't buy things at the grocery store and use them in arrangements because that is one of my main sources that for my home. Mm-hmm. And when I do things for church and everything, that is where I buy my stuff. Then you have to work with it more like a florist works with it. The arrangements maybe aren't as natural looking. The arrangements you're doing at Hills and Dales really have more of a natural look to them. Yeah, that tends to be my style. I like things that have kind of a little wild look to them where there'll be twigs or something going off one direction and flowers off the other. For the majority of people that see them, they like that because it does look really natural. And it's not something you see a lot when you order a floral arrangement, an establishment. And in my mind, doing this connecting with Mrs. Calloway, because of looking at her garden and everything, I think that's what she would like. She would like to see the natural form of things. 
What do you get really excited about as far as the natural twists and turns or wacky things that you find in the garden? You've already mentioned twigs. Yeah, that's I was going to say that again, because I, I really like using those arrangements. People may get kind of tired of seeing them. Boy, they have so many hydrangeas here. I love using hydrangeas. They just make a big, fluffy arrangement, and it's just very graceful. We also grow our own cow lilies here in the greenhouse. They're what I call a standard size cow lily. So when I pick them, they're anywhere from about two feet long to two and a half feet long. It has a very large blossom on it. I really, really like that because as a florist, I never, my wife and I were florists before I got this job here. We never used cow lilies a whole lot. They were expensive and people just didn't order them much. And here I've got dozens of them that I get to use all winter and spring and a little bit into the summer. And so those flowers kind of get me a little excited when I get to use those. They're hard to use. Their stems are so big. Putting them into foam is really difficult. That's when I use one of those wire frogs a lot of times. It's when I'm using cow lilies. Can you give us a hint about what you'll be using during the upcoming holiday seasons, Thanksgiving, Christmas, what you like to use for those times out of the garden? That is when I rely heavily on those dried hydrangeas. I use at Thanksgiving time, I will be using some Indian corn, which and I have to go purchase that. We don't grow that here on the estate. I do use some dried okra pods, which we have grown here, and I have just kept them from year to year. Then I will use Nandina berries. I will start to use some of the holly berries because some of them have not turned totally red yet. So I kind of like that greenish red look to it. If I can find fall leaves from maple trees and things like that, I'll cut those and use branches of fall leaves in my arrangements. I will still have some of the salvias blooming. So that'll give me some rusty colors and some purples and that type of thing. I will continue to buy gourds and some pumpkins and use that. Every now and then I'll even buy bread, like artisan breads that are whole loaves, and use those to give like a bountiful look to a centerpiece. I've been known also to go buy vegetables like cabbages and radishes and add those in. That kind of handles something around Thanksgiving. Christmas time, I rely heavily on magnolia. There's nothing better. I do cut a lot of boxwood in order to use in my arrangements. I also start collecting pine cones, large pine cones from the longleaf pine. I have a fellow here at work that brings me white pine pine cones because they're longer and more slender. I rely heavily on just berries and on the greenery that we have here at the estate. Then there's one thing that a lot of people in the South do use or used to use, and it's called Smilax. Smilax is a vine that most people probably kind of curse that gets up in their trees. There are several kinds. Some of them you might refer to them as uh, stickers or whatever because they have thorns all up and down the vine. There's another one that goes up into the top of the trees and it has a very beautiful dark evergreen leaf and has no spines or thorns on it. You pull that out of the trees and it will last for a week, maybe a week and a half, even just put up in a chandelier or out of an arrangement on a mantle. 
For those listeners that remember the Talmages, he was governor of Georgia. His wife, Betty Talmage, she taught me how to use Smilax. She wanted it used in her home. I would go find it and pick it and then use it in her arrangements because she wanted something kind of historical because her house was built in 1835, something like that. There's another person who taught me a little trick. Being from up north, I didn't know about Smilax. Here at Hills and Dales, I'll also take a spray paint and I will paint it gold. It makes a really nice addition in with your dark greens of your firs and arborvitaes and things like that to have this little lightly arranged leaves that have this gold tint to it. It gives a very holiday vibe to your arrangement. Also, Nandina berries are red by that time. Don't always have to use them as red. I will also spray those with gold and use those in arrangements, and that looks really good. I'm kind of on a gold kick right now in this conversation, but you can also spray magnolia leaves with gold paint and tuck them into your Christmas tree. You can use the individual leaves and put them into arrangements and that type of thing. But you got to pick the right color of gold. I've only found one and it's called 24 Carat. It's made by Designer Dispatch, I believe is the name. And it's a florist paint. It's a nice mellow color of gold. It's not harsh. It's been approved to be used in the house because they do try to monitor what is put in the house to make sure it has the look that everybody feels is appropriate. And some of those spray paints, the color of gold is just extremely harsh or brassy looking and it doesn't look good. So it's not just off the shelf paint. No, it's made for florists, but you can get it at Michael's. Should be able to get it at Hobby Lobby. What holds people back? I think what the floral arranging is for people not to be afraid to try things. Because when I have taught classes, I find that people are inhibited. They don't want to put a great big branch in their arrangements or they're a little bit afraid to just kind of go all out and do something that is not the norm. I think they should just really try things first. Then the other things we have not really covered is that underneath all of this design work that we're talking about, the foam and all this, is your basic principles of design. One of the most important ones is balance mainly your physical balance of your arrangement. No matter what arrangement you are doing, that thing has got to stand up. You should not be designing something that won't stand up on its own. That is placement of materials in the foam or in the wire mesh and placing it so that everything is balanced and you're not worried about that arrangement falling backwards or forwards or to the sides. As we start looking at some of the magazines today where they're doing what they're basically advertising as a more modern design, I think sometimes people are getting away from the basic principles of design. Those are like the focal point and rhythm and balance and proportion. I really think you have to pay attention to all those things in order to come up with a design that when people look at it, they go, oh, that looks really nice, especially in the spot that you have it. That's kind of what I'm searching for when people look in this house is when they come out, do they seek me out and they say, I really liked your arrangements in the house. They just went in that spot. Well, then I know I achieved my goal. It was the right proportion. It evidently didn't fall over or anything while they were looking at it. And it was pleasing to their eye. If you don't follow the principles of design quite often, it's not pleasing to the eye. Can you give us a real quick principles of design? 
I'll just kind of hit on each one. Number one is proportion. Proportion of your arrangement has to do with the piece of furniture it's sitting on. How big is it? It also has to do with the size of the room. If I'm designing an arrangement that has to go in the front of a very large church, if I'm to make it in proportion, I have to make sure that that arrangement is big enough that it doesn't look strange sitting in front of that church or that it can be seen when somebody's at the back of the church. To put it on a smaller scale, if you're doing a dining room arrangement and you have a table that seats, let's say 12, well, a little tiny one foot round arrangement is not going to be enough on that table. So either you're going to have to do multiples of that round arrangement, such as maybe five of them going down the center of the table, or you're going to have to design one arrangement that is taller and longer. So that's proportion. Another one is rhythm. Rhythm has to do with the lines that are in your arrangement. You might have curving lines. You might have diagonal lines. You might have vertical or horizontal lines. Those all establish the rhythm in your arrangement. They've got to make sense with one another if you have one, two, or three of those different kinds of lines in your arrangement. It will establish a visual balance. It will also help you establish your focal point, which is going to be another principle of design. All these lines that are establishing a rhythm all have to appear that they are coming out of a centralized point in your foam or in your vase should look like they're all headed towards that point in the arrangement. The location of that point, thats it's really hard to explain it verbally. It's easier to do it visually. It normally lies slightly above the lip of your container in the center. So slightly above and then move back to the center of the container. And that is where that point is. And all stems should appear that they are radiating out of that point. Then you've got the focal point. Your focal point adds to your balance. It also will contribute to your rhythm. What happens there is your focal point is, again, just above the lip of your container. It should be the part of the arrangement that is facing out towards the person who's viewing it. And it's usually the heavier part of your arrangement. Let's say it's the most dense portion of your arrangement. That density can come from color. Think about what color would give me more of a look of heaviness or denseness, and it would probably be some darker colors. It can also be by placement of your flowers. Closer together makes a more dense look. As flowers get closer to your focal point, they get closer together. And that will involve your spacing. So if you're putting your flowers in your arrangement, flowers that are out at the edges of the arrangement are spaced farther apart from each other. And as they get closer to that focal point, you'll start putting them closer together. Harmony is another thing. Harmony means the items that I'm putting in the arrangement, do they look like they go together? Such as, if I took a beautiful porcelain vase that was a very high quality and shine, do I put zinnias in that vase or sunflowers? Probably not. They don't match the vase, so you don't have harmony there. But if I used a vase that was a little duller, maybe not so fancy, a little rougher looking, then they would go. It also matters with flowers that you're using with each other. If I'm using sunflowers, sunflowers and baby's breath might not be the best choice. Due to the fact that sunflowers are heavy and clunky, baby's breath is light and airy and they don't match very well. 
that kind of gives you an idea about what harmony would be. Line is another principle of design. Line, we mentioned with rhythm, basically your line is the ones I mentioned that's going to be vertical, horizontal, or curved. All of those things, you got to make decisions on, am I going to be doing all of them, some of them, or one? There's a style of arrangement called a Hogarth curve, which a lot of people call an S-curve. Just about every line in that arrangement is curved. You've got to find your plant material that will either be able to be curved or you have to be skilled enough in order to place the blossoms so they give the illusion that you have all this curve in the arrangement. It's not an arrangement I would do as a novice designer. I would probably wait till I had a pretty good grasp of what I was doing to try that one. Most people, when they begin doing floral arrangements, either go simple, such as round, then your line in the round, it's a radiating line, comes out of the center. It's a pretty easy one to do. Or they'll do a horizontal arrangement or they'll do a vertical arrangement. And those are a little bit easier to manage. I think that's why we see florists quite often do fan-shaped arrangements. They do triangles, that type of thing. Again, I'm kind of remembering back in the 70s and 80s, and that's about all you could get from a florist. Today, we have a lot of florists now that are have kind of loosened up a little bit more and are doing more free-form type bouquets, that type of thing. I hate for people to expect too much out of a florist because florists today, unfortunately, follow a lot of predetermined designs, especially if they belong to a wire service. They are basically told what this arrangement is to look like. We've got a few florists still around that have designers on their staff that can come up with a creative, more imaginative design. That's the florist I would want to use because I think I could get something more to my liking than one that's following a book and just copying arrangements out of it. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, and growing a garden or landscape? I'm going to put it from my own point of view because I did this. I put too much in my garden. I put so much in it, I couldn't take care of it. I found out the younger I was, the easier it was to take care of an extensive like a perennial garden or annual garden. The older I got or the busier I got, then I couldn't take care of it. It's better to grow a few things very well and where they look so nice and neat than it is to cram every plant that you can find at the local nursery into your garden to where you have just this kind of weedy look to the whole thing. That's one thing. And I think also planning your garden really helps out where you start thinking about why am I placing this plant where I'm putting it? Does it look good where I put it? I know I'm constantly changing things in my yard. I'll plant something and I'll make a mistake. Or maybe it grew bigger in my yard than it was supposed to grow. And so then I have to move it from the front to the back. That's where I think people, they need to just kind of look at planning out their gardens a little bit more. Think about it, how it's going to look when it's fully grown. I wish the guy who built my house had thought our foundation planting's better than he would not have planted my Burford Hollies two feet away from the house. (laughs) You end up having to cut everything down. I don't think there's any thought put into their initial (laughs) landscape that a builder does. No, they just throw something in. Just trying to get the house closed. That's right. And I think we all make that mistake because plants are so small when we put them in. We tend to put too many in because we want it to look full. And we don't think about 10 years down the road, 
how big is that plant going to be? And I still make that mistake from time to time. And it's a common mistake. Then you end up just having to dig something up or cut it down and space things out a little bit better. Oh, and I guess the other thing is that I think this is a hard thing to do. I find it hard myself, is constantly be improving your soil. Your plants depend on their soil in order to grow well, especially your flowering plants, such as your herbaceous perennials and annuals. And you've got to give them a nice organic soil to grow in. Our soils here in Georgia are good soils. They have a lot of nutrients in it and everything, but they tend to be a little clay in most places. You need to loosen them up a little bit and your composts and everything are going to do that. It helps in some of your drainage and even in water retentions. If people would just constantly be improving their soil, which means every year you're going to have to add compost to your soil. Sometimes that's not an easy thing to do. That's a lot of work to do. Do you have a method of maybe chopping leaves or anything like that that you could do? I use my lawnmower and I rake my leaves up into a big pile and I run my lawnmower over them several times until they're crushed up. I literally throw that right on my garden soil. Because they're cut up kind of fine, they decompose quicker, then I just keep doing that every year. Up north, it was kind of nice. I used to be able to use my grass clippings in my garden. I can't do that down here. The Bermuda, you get any clippings in there, they'll root. You'll have a worse problem. They tend to mat up too more, their grass clippings. Oh, yeah. That's basically what I do. I have had compost piles. I think my biggest problem with that was uh, remembering to turn them. That's a lot of work also to get out there and turn it. But boy, does it give you some great soil. And then you just top dress it over your bed. Yeah, yeah. I can remember my grandfather. Now, he did not do flowers, but he did vegetables. His garden was void of anything during the wintertime. So he would take all his fall leaves and he would dump them all on top of his garden. I mean, quite thick. And he'd let them sit there all winter long. And then in the spring, he'd uh, go out there with a rototiller and he would start turning all that under. He got his soil to where it was absolutely beautiful. With a perennial garden, you can't do that. Your plants are in there. So you do have to get on there and kind of top dress, and you might be able to dig it in a little bit in the open areas. You're a trained horticulturalist also. What questions do you get asked most about gardening in in general, like from your friends, relatives, neighbors, people that visit hills and dales? At church, I get the question of, I have moss growing in my yard. I don't know. How do I get rid of it? I usually ask them, you have a lot of shade? Yeah. I said, does your ground not drain? Most of the time, it doesn't drain very well. And then I ask if they've ever tested the pH, because more than likely, it's fairly acid. They need to add some lime. That will help to start getting rid of the moss. I think identification is one of the biggest things I get asked here at the garden and by friends. What is this plant? My best advice to tell people is take a picture of it. Because when you're describing things to a horticulturalist, if you say, well, it has a big leaf and it has veins, most people can't give a detailed enough description that we can picture it in our mind. It's best if you have a picture and that's going to be where we can identify something. We find that our guests here, they really, like in our herb garden and in the greenhouse and everything, if we don't have it labeled, they usually want to know what things are, if they can grow it in their yard. That would probably be another question is that people visiting here from Tennessee or from Michigan or wherever, they will say, can I grow this at home? Well, the first thing you got to ask them is, where do you live? 
if they like our crepe myrtles, well, you know, if you live too far north, you can't grow a crepe myrtle. And, you know, that's real important to know what zone they live in and what are the conditions in order to be able to give them advice on if a plant is going to survive in their area. I had kind of a funny thing. One of my friends is a landscape architect in Chicago. He also owns a farm and he grows peonies and all sorts of things out there. One of his friends, I saw it on Facebook, asked him, I live in Georgia. Can I grow peonies because I miss having peonies in my garden? And he told her a flat no because of living in the South. I typed back real quickly. I said, oh, yes, you can. I said, we grow them at hills and dales. And I said, it's all a matter of how deep you plant those peonies. I said, you got to plant them right at the soil surface so that they get a cold treatment. It's kind of fun to be able to answer questions like that for people when you think they've been told the wrong thing. Can you tell us another funny garden or landscape related story? I know for me, I have been interested in gardens and flowers since I was a toddler. My mother told me, she said, your first word that you spoke was, and I'll say it how I said it as a little kid, it was Fowser, and it was a term for flower. <laughs> My grandmother always had me out in her garden. She had me in the neighbor's yard at her garden. The neighbor had a fish pond. She didn't use it as a fish pond. She used it as a place for compost. Well, she would throw all her leaves and stuff like that in it. We'd get wet and soupy and stinky and everything. Then she'd get that stuff out and throw it on her garden. We'd always been told to stay away from it. Well, I was over there with my grandmother and she wasn't paying attention to what I was doing. And I fell in that thing. <laughs> when she pulled me out, she said I had slime all over me. I smelled like a sewer. Of course, she was afraid I would drown in it. She had to take me in and just kind of shower me off and take me home. Luckily, we lived across the alley from her, and she just kind of bundled me up in a towel and took me home. I tend to do a lot of things like that where I hope people aren't watching. I've driven a lawnmower into a fish pond already. <laughs> the clutch popped on me, and I just went Phew, right in. I taught horticulture in high school for 30 years, and the things that you see kids do is just amazes you. The kids who don't know how to use a shovel, that used to amaze me. You literally have to teach them how to use a shovel. <laughs> I would laugh when I'd hand them a rake. said, okay, I want you to rake this soil out smooth. And they just kind of piddle around with it. And they, they just literally don't know what they're doing with it. And of course, I realized that not everybody was brought up like I was, where I worked with my grandparents and my parents out in the yard. I think that's really why people don't know how to use it. Some people don't have gardens at all, or they hire it done. What is your earliest garden memory? I can remember going to that same grandmother's house. Every spring, she would take me out in the yard and we would go look at the crocuses coming up. And she would tell me their name. She'd tell me not to pick it. And then we'd go over and look at her tulips. I was given the rules. She said, if you want to pick a flower, you've got to ask me. I'll come cut it. Don't just yank it out of the ground because I'd end up pulling the bulb and everything out of the ground. She had one tree in the yard, and at the base of the tree, she had a little tiny blue flower that would come up every spring. It's a, a scylla. That is one thing that she would let me go out there and pick on my own. And she had a special little vase for me that I could put it in. And that really is about my earliest memory of actually working with flowers. The sad part about me liking gardening and everything is that as a young male in middle school or high school, you didn't tell anybody stuff like that because they would have made fun of you. I don't think any of my friends knew that I did any type of really gardening or that I did any type of floral work or anything like that. They didn't know that about me at all. 
I think that's kind of sad that you can't do it, but that's the pressures of society, what we think is appropriate. They all know now, so it doesn't much matter. (laughs) (laughs) Why did you decide to pursue the horticulture profession? I didn't want to go into road construction that my father had. That was something I just was not cut out to do. That sounds funny. I'm not afraid of work. It just didn't interest me at all. He thought all of his sons, of which he had four, would go into the business. Three of them did, and I'm the only one who did not. Because I'd always liked plants and everything, I just never thought of anything else that I wanted to do. I wanted really to work in a greenhouse. When I went to college, I immediately signed up for horticulture, did the whole thing, not really knowing exactly how that would turn out. One of my professors introduced me to teaching by teaching adult classes at night. And then I was the teaching assistant for their horticulture general courses. I really liked it. They opened up a degree where technically I was called an agriculture teacher, but I would specialize in horticulture. Then that's where I went from there and got my job here in Georgia teaching high school horticulture. Where did you teach? I taught at Jonesboro High School. They had a full horticulture department. We had two enormous greenhouses and two teachers. We had an outdoor lab where we taught landscape design and installation. We had a pretty nice setup. So I stayed there for 30 years teaching. When did you start the floral design and training? I had been doing some home floral designing like for Mother's Day and stuff like that to give my grandmother something and that type of thing. I did one floral design contest when I was probably about 14 years old, won first place, and I didn't do it again after that. It was when I got into college. I started meeting these other people who were really interested in floral design and everything, and I'd watch what they did. They taught me some things. Then I went to a floral design school in Chicago for about six weeks and learned what I call commercial floral design, such as I'd be going and opening a store and I needed to learn how do the commercial florists do their things. Was offered any job I wanted in Chicago when I finished because I just had this natural ability to put a design together. I didn't accept any of those offers because I had not finished college yet and I knew my parents would kill me if I did not finish school. Then I went into the teaching profession After a while and after I had gotten married, my wife and I decided to open a florist. And that would have been in the middle 80s, 1985, around there. We opened a florist and had it for about 15 years, gained a lot more knowledge, had a lot of cool experiences with different people and doing large weddings and that type of thing. Then we just got tired. The florist business is a tough business. I think people look at it and they just think, oh, you just work with flowers all day long, but you're carrying buckets and you're delivering weddings. We had nine foot white columns we were hauling around in a truck in order to set up scenes for where the wedding cake was going to be set and that type of thing. It's physically demanding also. Our two children spent many nights sleeping in flower boxes the stuff that flowers are shipped in underneath our design tables while we were finishing up weddings or prom flowers or anything like that. We had a TV there for them and they'd be there till one or two o'clock in the morning with us. It was tough on them too. You were modeling hard work. I'm sure they benefited from that. Oh yeah, I think so. Our daughter's a teacher now and our son is a police officer. Great service. 
How did you end up at Hillsendales? That's a funny story right there. I was sitting in a classroom at Southern Crescent Technical College where I was teaching part-time. My superior came in as a description of a job here at Hills and Dales, and it was for greenhouse manager, floral designer, etc. He said, would you read this to your class and see if any of them would be interested in applying for this job? Because these were all college age people and some older in their 30s. He started to leave, but he turned around and he said, but he said, I really think you ought to read it. He said, not that I'm trying to get rid of you. He said, I really don't want to lose you. But he said, you need to read this. So when I read it, it was all the things that I do. It was the floral design. I was trained in greenhouse operations. I've taught before and they needed somebody to teach workshops and lead tours and everything. You know, I was 60 years old at that time. I didn't think anybody would hire me. I didn't answer it. And finally, I said, I need to do something else besides this teaching. And so I got my application in and my resume in just at the last minute. And bingo, they liked what they saw and they hired me and didn't care that I was 60 years old. That was a good thing. <laughs> I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. I have deer. <laughs> <laughs> The town I live in, and I live in town. I do not live outside of town. My backyard has been totally destroyed by deer. They are sleeping in our backyard. They are grazing in our backyard. If I have anything back there, I have holly, iris, daffodils, azaleas, which they seem to have left alone, and a lot of hard work that now doesn't look like I've done a whole lot. The deer have gotten me very depressed. <laughs> Do you have any future plans for your garden, dealing with the deer or anything? Yes, we are going to put a fence up, see if we can stop some with that. But I am concentrating a lot on planting things that, number one, I don't have to do a lot of maintenance with, and number two, the deer don't like. I happen to really like iris, so I'm going to put a lot of iris in, and they don't like iris at all. I'm just going to landscape with some nice shrubbery and things that they will pretty much leave alone. Well, give us some hints on what that might be. From talking with people here at work, it varies. They don't eat all of my azaleas. There's just a few that they eat. So I'm staying away from those azaleas. They don't bother my camellias. They don't bother my loripetlums anymore. They don't eat my nandina. And I have some boxwood and they, they don't eat it. I have kind of a little natural area. So I have some helleborus out there. They, they don't bother it either. Those are kind of some of the things I'm going with. And I still make mistakes. I'll buy something and put it out there and next day it's gone. Oh, there's a shrub now that a lot of people are using called distillium. They don't seem to bother that in my yard either. It's a beautiful dark green shrub. I've had really good luck with it. It's just kind of hard. So I'm going to reduce my variety and kind of stick with a basic, just so I have green out there, not all bare. Is there anything else I should have asked you? I will tell you that working here at Hills and Dales Estate has been one of the most pleasant jobs I have ever had. I won't say the easiest job I've ever had because physically, when you're in your 60s, this can be kind of hard for you to do. But I'm lucky. I was blessed with a pretty good constitution. I'm able to handle most of the things they give me. Only thing I can't handle, I can't climb up on the roof of the house. I did it once. I almost didn't get down. <laughs> the guy had to talk me down. Oh, yeah. It's the coming down part. It's the toughest. I literally froze once I got up there. I was just like, oh, it just it scared me to death. 
What were you doing up there in the first place? Well, I'd never been up there. One of our main workers, he was going up there to refasten a shade cloth that covers one of the skylights. I thought, okay, there's a ladder that goes up there from the third floor and you crawl through this little hole in the ceiling. And I thought, well, I can do that. I said, is there a place to stand up there? He goes, yeah. So he went up and took off. And so I went up. He didn't tell me it was like this little ledge that my feet barely fit on. (laughs) I got totally out of the access hole. And luckily there was a chimney there because that's what I held on to (laughs) the whole time. It just overtook me when I realized how high I was and my footing. I felt it wasn't that secure. Just waited until he got done. And then he came over beside me and he said, "Okay, just start moving over slowly. And I think it gave me confidence that he was standing there. Once I got one foot back in the access hole, then I was okay and I could get down. But, oh, man, that took me forever. (laughs) I was shaking. That scared me. Because if you fall off that roof, it's all that clay tile roof. You're just going to slide. Yeah, there's no stopping what you get going. I No, no, you're just going to fall off. I don't go up there anymore. Well, that's better than what I imagined, because I was picturing you going up the side of the house on a ladder, and I knew that was three stories or something like that. Yeah, I I, (laughs) I wouldn't do that at all. (laughs) I can't even hardly do that at my house. David, tell us about Hills and Dales Estate and how people may connect with you. Hills and Dales Estate started in the 1840s by Sarah Farrell as her formal garden around her antebellum cottage style home. In the early 1900s, Fuller Calloway bought the property, removed the home from the property, and built his home in the garden. He had played in the garden as a child and wanted to preserve it. Since 1916, when the Calloways opened up their home, it has been in the Calloway family the entire time until the death of Alice Calloway in 1998. At that time, it became the property of the Fuller Eve Calloway Foundation. To contact me, you may call the Horticulture Building at 706-845-9994. This has been Episode 82, Designing from the Garden with David Brown, a remix of Episode 30. Thank you, David. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.